Our scripture for this morning comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our new series in the book of Galatians this morning. As, uh, and as we begin our time this morning, I'd like to ask you to join me in somewhat of a, of a thought experiment. So I want you to imagine that after uh, we are done with the worship service this morning and you leave the church property, you get in your car and you go to visit a family member or a close friend. And as you're arriving at the home of your loved one, you notice that there is a large fire raging behind their home. The smoke is thick, it's black, and you can tell that it is only a matter of time before your loved one's home is going to be consumed by this fire. I want to ask you, what do you do in that moment? Do you sit in the car and just hope that they know about the fire? Do you slowly saunter up to the front door and ring the doorbell and wait for them to answer? And if they answer the door, do you kind of engage in polite pleasantries and greet them and say, it's so nice to see you? It, it sounds so silly because we all know if you truly care about your family member or your friend in this moment, in this kind of a situation, you would immediately barge into their house and do whatever it took to warn them of this looming disaster. Now let's take it one step further. I want you to imagine in this scenario, after you have barged into your loved one's home to warn them of this fire, you discover that there is someone already in the house. And as you are seeking to persuade your loved one to get out and to evacuate, this person steps in and says to your loved one, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. We'll be fine. In fact, this is better. Plus, listen, who are they to tell you what to do? I think they're really just in it for themselves. Think about that. What would you do in this kind of a situation? And I think if we're honest, we would forgo any and all pleasantries immediately, and you would have some words with that person. This is the kind of thing that we see in our passage this morning. You see, in every other letter that is written by the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament, Right after the greeting, there's this small section where Paul gives thanks for the people he is writing to. Even in letters like 1 Corinthians, which is a church marred by division and sexual immorality, Paul gives thanks for that church. Or, or a church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul recognizes they are suffering significant persecution, and yet Paul takes a minute to give thanks for them. But in Galatians, 
he doesn't stop to give thanks. He writes the introductory greeting of the letter, and then he launches straight into a serious warning. You'll remember, Paul and Barnabas had planted this church or these churches in the region of Galatia. And after they had left and gone back to Antioch, a group known as the Judaizers had made their way to the region of Galatia and infiltrated these churches and began teaching what Paul in this passage is going to describe as a different gospel. They told the Christians in Galatia that while faith in Jesus was good, they needed to do more in order to be saved from God's wrath. They needed to do more to be God's people. Namely, they needed to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. And the travesty is that the Galatian churches bought it. And they turned to this different gospel, and that had placed them in grave spiritual danger. And I would argue, based on Paul's response to the Galatian church in this passage today, his response to this crisis demonstrates that the greatest danger that we face as Christians, that we will ever face as a church, is not persecution from outside of the church. It is false teaching from within the church. And this is why Paul's going to go to great lengths in our passage this morning to help us understand that we need to be prepared and willing to warn one another about the great dangers of false teaching and of a false gospel. Before we dive into this heavy passage this morning, let's take a moment and pray that the Lord would help us as we read his word. Heavenly Father, these are heavy things we are about to consider, and so we come to you humbly asking for your help. By your Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts and help us not simply to understand them, but to heed the warning that is in this portion of your word. We thank you for preserving this warning down to this very day and giving it to us, that we might have hope in your Son eternally, and that we might have help in our present moment. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul is going to great lengths to describe the dangers of false teaching because he sees this as the ultimate crisis that would face Christians and would face the Galatians church. And this is because first and foremost, as we see, false teaching is a distortion of the one true gospel. I want you to notice throughout this passage how many times Paul uses the word gospel. It's in verse 6, it's in verse 7, it's in verse 8, it's even in verse 9. The only verse it's not in that we read is verse 10. Nearly every single sentence uses this word gospel. But what is the gospel? You might think that that is a, a simple question, but I'll ask you to consider it in your own heart right now. How would you answer that question? What is the gospel? Because Paul, in this passage, wants to deal with that ambiguity. He wants you to have a clear understanding of the gospel. In Greek, this word gospel simply means good news. And it begs the question, the good news concerning what? And so Paul, in verse 7, phrases it like this. In verse 7, Paul describes the gospel as the gospel of of Christ. 
It's the message that's not just about Christ, it is also the message that Paul received from Christ concerning the salvation of God's people. Now, in Galatians, it's not super clear in this particular passage. It will be abundantly clear as we continue to make our way through Galatians. But elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually gives us a really concise definition of what he thinks about when he is using this word gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing to that church and he says, Brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want you to hear this. The gospel has a particular content, and that content matters. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he's using the word gospel. This one only message is in his mind, the message of our salvation in and through Christ, of God's grace toward undeserving sinners in Christ alone. And that word alone is so crucial to Paul. The reason that Paul is going to great lengths to communicate this to the Galatians is because Paul recognizes is that this message, what we call the gospel, is the only message that brings salvation. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants you and Paul wants the Galatian believers to have a crystal clear understanding of what he means and what God means when he says gospel. Because here's the reality. Paul knows that the false teachers in Galatia and the false teachers in our culture are not walking around with t-shirts that say, I am a false teacher, do not listen to me. False teachers will use Christian words to describe their message. They may even call the message that they are giving to us gospel. And this is why in verse 6 and in verse 7, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear. There is only one gospel. The message of the false teachers is not just a different gospel. Notice in verse seven, he says, they're preaching a different gospel. Just kidding. It's not a different gospel at all. It is a distortion of the true gospel. How are the false teachers distorting the gospel? This is where Paul's description of the false teachers in verse seven, I think, is, is immensely helpful to us. You see, he describes these false teachers in two ways. First thing is he says that they are people who want to trouble you. That's the word he uses to describe what they're doing. Then he also says that they want to distort the gospel. That first word that is translated trouble, it actually doesn't mean division. It doesn't mean that the, the false teachers are trying to come in and try to, like, you know, pit people against one another. They may have been doing that, but Paul's point here is that the way in which false teachers corrupt the gospel message is that they come in with messages that are confusing. That's what that word trouble 
means. And so by adding to or subtracting from or mixing up the definitions of terms, false teachers have and will continue to try to confuse the gospel message. And by doing that, what they are in effect doing is distorting the gospel. And this word distort It it doesn't actually mean kind of impurities. It means to turn upside down. So in one sense, you have a gospel, the gospel, that says this is what God has done for you in Christ. And the Judaizers are saying exactly the opposite. Here is what you must do for God so that he will save you. It's a complete corruption. It's a complete distortion. It's a complete reversal of the gospel message. Don't miss this. The reason the Galatians fell for it is because the false teachers used Christian words to describe that. They quoted scripture, and on the surface it looked like they had the best intentions. They may have even said to the Galatians, perhaps, I care deeply about your salvation. That is why I am telling you, you must be circumcised. The Galatians were completely duped into believing a false gospel because these false teachers had sown seeds of discord and they had turned the Galatians' heads from that one true message. They had said Jesus plus the law of Moses equals salvation. They had added a requirement of what it meant to be God's people. But what does this look like in our culture? Because I don't know about you, I don't hear many people making this argument today, and yet I know that our nation and the Christian experience in the 21st century is completely surrounded by the fires of false teaching. And I think one of the most uh, invasive and and most uh, terrifying example of this is usually found especially around election cycles. They are false gospels that capture our attention nationally because they try to take the gospel and marry it to a particular political cause or a particular political identity. They quote scripture to us. They call their message genuine Christianity. It's on the left. It's on the right. It's everywhere. Jesus plus identity politics is not the gospel, church. It is a false gospel. Whether it is Jesus plus conservative public policy or Jesus plus social justice, that is not the gospel. That is a distortion of the gospel. That's just nationally. There are other gospels, false gospels, that turn our heads personally as well. In Paul David Tripp's book, How People Change, he lists a few that I think might be particularly helpful for us to consider in our own lives. The gospel of formalism, of Jesus plus my church attendance and church involvement. That is what brings me salvation. Or Jesus plus legalism, of being able to keep God's law according to my own standard. That is the gospel and will bring salvation, or the gospel of, of, of Christian mysticism, which says God, the Jesus plus certain spiritual experiences, if I don't have those, I can't be confident that I am truly one of God's 
people or the gospel of activism, Jesus plus some kind of Christian cause that we are, we are passionate about or Jesus plus correct and perfect doctrine. It's not that doctrine doesn't matter, but we can actually buy into the belief that Jesus plus perfect doctrine is the only way that we will be saved. There are so many false gospels that surround us. And Paul Tripp echoes the Apostle Paul in that book when he says, perhaps, maybe we should consider this, perhaps postmodernism and sexual immorality are not the greatest threats to the church in our day. Perhaps we are in more danger from the subtle lies that flow from these subtle shifts in how we understand the gospel. This is not a plug necessarily for the discipleship hour, but this is why the gospel-centered life as a discipleship class, we believe, is so important. We need to have the gospel clear in our heads, and we need to have the gospel clear in our hearts. The gospel is not about what we do to be God's people. The gospel is about what God has graciously done for you in Christ alone to rescue you from your sin and from his wrath, to deliver you from this present evil age, all for his glory. And it's that message, Paul will say, is to be received by faith alone. Now, you might be tempted to think, come on, Eric, I mean, is this really that big of a deal that we kind of flirt with political causes and, and distort that with the gospel? Is it really that big of a deal that sometimes I put my hope and my trust in my church involvement? Like, is this really that big of a deal? And Paul would say, if that's how you're approaching this warning, you are missing what is at the heart of turning to false teaching. I want you to notice in verse six here, Paul describes false teaching not as a matter of spiritual opinions, but as a matter of spiritual infidelity. Look in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This word that's translated deserting is actually just translated really well. This word means to Walk away from your king and desert the army that you are with. To reassign your allegiance to a new kingdom, to a new king. This one Greek word, it describes defecting from the one with whom you had had your allegiance. Because it is not about theology, though theology is important. It is not about biblical Doctrine, though that is important as well. The gospel, first and foremost, is relational, of God's relationship with and toward you. Notice again in verse six, Paul's emphasis. He says, you are so quickly deserting him. He doesn't say you are quickly deserting the teaching. He doesn't say you are quickly deserting the doctrine. He says, you are deserting him. The one who called you, that is God, in the grace of Christ. The gospel is intensely relational. It is also intensely personal. As Paul is describing the origin of our salvation, 
that it is coming from God, not from our actions, I want you to notice that he is connecting this to a very personal experience, both for the Galatians and especially for himself. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I want you to hear how Paul is thinking about his salvation and his relationship to the gospel message. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As I was meditating on this passage this week, I vacillated back and forth between bringing this up. But you may be familiar uh, with something that is called a meme. Okay, a meme is, as I've heard it described as a pictorial parable. I think that's a fantastic way of thinking about it. It's an image that in some ways is trying to communicate some type of truth or emotional reality or whatever the case might be. And the images kind of capture it better than a sentence would. And if you are familiar with different memes, you may be familiar with the one of the guy walking down the street with his girlfriend, holding onto her hand, and he's turning back and he's checking out this other girl that's been walking past them. And you can imagine, even if you haven't seen the meme, what the expression on the girl's friend's face is to the guy turning around and checking out the other lady. It's not the look of, isn't that nice? It's the look of, are you kidding me? Whether or not you've seen the meme is irrelevant. Turning to a different gospel is captured by this meme because the reality is, what we're talking about is spiritual infidelity. To confuse or distort the message of Christ, to turn to these different gospels, is to engage in that infidelity. And it would be like welcoming somebody into your marriage, someone else, and expecting your spouse to just be okay with that. Expecting your spouse to not just be okay with that, but to approve of that, to encourage you to explore this new relationship, because somehow introducing this new person into your marriage relationship would somehow, in some perverted, weird way, make your relationship with them better. Do you get what Paul is trying to say about how false teaching is not just spiritual opinions? It is spiritual infidelity, which leads to a really important question we should all be asking. What false gospels are turning your hearts? What are you being attracted to that is trying to grab Christian language and call it the gospel while in reality just corrupting the pure faith that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Because what we see here is that once we see false teaching through this lens, that this is spiritual infidelity, it actually helps us understand why Paul says what is arguably one of the most intense sentences in the New Testament. Here is what Paul says about the false teachers and about false teaching. He says, in verse 8 and verse 9, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, 
let him be accursed. This word that is translated accursed is the Greek word anathema. This word uh, is not a word that we use uh, regularly, um, but it is deeply actually embedded in an Old Testament story, the story of the sin of Achan. And we can find this story in Joshua chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I will tell you this story. When God's people were beginning to make their way into the promised land, and as God was defeating his enemies and delivering the land into the hands of the nation of Israel, there was a man named Achan who was told by the leaders of Israel that God had devoted the things of these nations to destruction. It's called harem. And what it is, is that God did not want his people to be corrupted by the traditions or by the rituals of these nations. And so God had removed that temptation and devoted all of those things to destruction. Things like gold, and cattle, things that represented to the people of Israel, this is the other nation's things. God had devoted those things to destruction. And in Joshua chapter 7, we find out that Achan took some of these things that were devoted to destruction, and he hid them for himself and his family. And it says in Joshua chapter 7 that the nation of Israel experienced great pain and turmoil because of this sin against God. And so God exposed Achan's sin. And it is a very difficult passage to read because what we see is Achan and his family being sentenced to death for hoarding these devoted things, these things that were devoted to destruction. And God said, purify the people by executing justice on Achan and his family. The justice was so severe that there's actually in the Old Testament a valley named after this incident so that God's people would never forget how intense this was in their history. They named it the Valley of Arcor in Joshua chapter 7. This story helps us understand, I think by way of illustration, how serious it is when we entertain and follow after false teaching. When we turn to different gospels, when we enjoy distorted gospels and flirt with the world, we are placing ourselves in great spiritual danger. And here's why to make sense of the sin of Achan and the sin of following after false teaching, we need to understand following after false teaching is an affront to God's kingship. God was trying to communicate to the people of Israel in Joshua, I am your king. And for Achan to take the things of this other nation and hoard them for himself, things that God had told the nation of Israel to destroy because they were devoted to destruction, was effectively for Achan and his family to engage in treason and sedition. If someone truly in our midst were to commit sedition and treason, we would understand the gravity of that maybe a little bit more. 
This is what's happening in the life of Achan. This is what happen, is happening in the church of Galatia. It's not simply a matter of spiritual opinion. This false doctrine, this false teaching is an affront to God's kingship. And here's why. It is glorifying man, not glorifying God. I want you to look in verse 10 as the Apostle Paul concludes this section. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Notice that he's connecting this to the desire for approval. I want you to notice, in the first century, by, by removing Christianity from the rituals of the Old Testament, okay, that Christians were consistently persecuted by Jews and by other people. And Paul is saying the false teachers, in effect, are trying to please man and, quote, make it easier to be a Christian because now you are just simply aligning with these Jewish traditions. They're glorifying the works of man so that they would avoid being persecuted for Christ's sake. And Paul is saying, if you do that, if you turn to false teaching, if you turn to a different gospel, what you are revealing is that you would rather glorify yourself than glorify Christ. So let's go back to our thought experiment. This is the situation that the Galatian church is in. And so it makes sense why Paul would be as intense as he is. Effectively, the Galatian church is about to catch on fire. And Paul is writing as quickly as he can. He is delivering this message to us today so that we would recognize when we see false teaching in our midst or around us as a Christian culture, we need to see it not as interesting, but as dangerous. And the wonderful thing about how God is at work in and through this passage for us is it is the most loving thing for Christ to do to warn his people of danger. If you jumped out of your car and raced up to the front door and barged into your family members or friend's house to warn them of fire, if you got into the house and there was someone saying, don't listen to this person who's telling you about this danger, and you just shut that down, and you said, you listen to what I am saying, you are in grave danger. If that was true, and that person evacuated and saw the flames behind their house and how close they were to destruction and perishing, they would turn to you and they would not say, you were so rude. They would say, thank you. Thank you for faithfully loving me, even though I was flirting with disaster. They would say, thank you for looking out for me, for being an expression of God's relentless grace toward me, that even though I was so close to perishing, Christ has paid for all of my sins. This is the warning that we see in this passage. This is why we not only need to resist and reject false teaching, but we as a church need to be willing to jump out of our cars and warn one another. And in order to do this, there's three things I think we need to, to take away from this. The first is we need to know the only true gospel. 
We need to know deeply the gospel of God's grace toward you, an undeserving sinner who by faith alone, in Christ alone, has and will continue to receive the forgiveness of all your sin and receive perfect deliverance from this evil age. We need to know the gospel so that when we hear distorted, contrary, different gospels, we can recognize them as the counterfeit. The second thing that we need to do is we need to cherish the gospel and not take it for granted, not assume that it has reached and impacted every aspect of our lives, to go deeper, not in our heads, but in our hearts, about our love for the Lord because of his great love for us. We need to know the gospel, we need to cherish the gospel, and we need to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives. We do not move beyond the gospel in the Christian life. The gospel defines every aspect of our lives. And it's out of love for God and out of love for one another that we should be willing to point, to one another, point out to one another the dangers of false teaching in our culture and, heaven forbid, dangers in our own church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace toward us, that even as we flirt with and entertain false gospels, you continue to extend your grace to us in Christ. You continue to be faithful to your promises, and you give us the warnings that we need to turn back from the danger that we may find ourselves in. What a wonderful expression of your love. What an even greater expression of your love was that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking all of the weight and wrath for our sin upon yourself and for accomplishing once and for all the deliverance that we need from this evil and present age and from our sinful hearts. Continue to work in us by your spirit so that we would follow after you, love and cherish the gospel that you have given to us more than the false gospels that fill our culture. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.